so he started at me again. He got the clock and he put his hand over my mouth so I wouldn't scream. So when he went up to bed and he was asleep, I was putting roach ten in his mouth and he kept spitting the mouth with the drunk. Every time he was breathing, he was popping out of his mouth. What were you putting in his mouth? Roach ten. What are they? Volume ten. They're nerve tablets. And what was the idea of that? Were you... Well, I wanted to kill him. I wanted him. I just wanted him. I couldn't stand him. I wasn't able for the man. I wasn't. I was terrified. At nine o'clock at night, I'd walk, and that child would tell you, I'd walk from one end of the floor to the other, crying, before he came in. What is he going to start about tonight? What's going to happen tonight? I often said, where will I hide? Where can I hide? I had nowhere to go. I had nobody to go to because my brothers were afraid of him. My whole family was afraid of him, you know. And they couldn't take me with five children neither ways. A battered wife. A woman so harried by circumstances that she admits, candidly and without remorse, that she tried to murder her husband. And having failed, she tried again. And I tried to gas him at one stage. I put on all the gases, blocked up all the door, pulled the cloth when it was coming out, blocked up the door. I was sitting on the stairs in the hall. He was drunk. He was asleep. I was sitting on the stairs and... Um, I decided to go upstairs and left the gases on, full on. When I got up, I could smell the gas, and my children were sleeping over, so I had to run down, turn them all off. What brings a woman to a pass like this? What combination of events makes the wedding bells jangle so discordantly out of tune? Let's listen to this woman's story. I have five children, and um, I know my husband all my life. He only lived a few doors away from me. And he was very, very nice when I met him. And I was expecting my first child and I went away to England. He followed me and I got married in England. I lived with my sister and he lived in London. So I only seen him the weekends. So after nine months we came home. I lived with my mother, he lived with his mother and things were still all right. When I got my house, the trouble started. He used to come in at nights, call me terrible names. If I went to wash myself in the morning, he wanted to know why I was washing my face, going to the shops, who was I going to see, why I was so long. This was when he was idle, when he was smoking. Um, why do you think this was? Was he jealous of you? Yes. Did he think that you were looking at other men? Yes. And do you think this was the root cause of the whole trouble in your case? Well, I don't know. I don't really know if this was the cause of the whole trouble. I think there was something wrong with my husband. I think there is something wrong with him. Definitely. Well, how often did he assault you? Well, when I moved to the house force, it was every night. Every night he came in. And in the mornings... What, hit you with his hands? Yes, and hit with, with his head. And he often knocked me from one end of the room with a bang of his head to the other. What, butting you with yes, his Yes, yes. He has tried to cut me nose. He gave me bang of a bottle. How did he try to cut your nose? He held me back by the hair and got the saw knife and tried to cut the nose off me. I've often screamed and pleaded with him and asked him why he was doing it. I hadn't a clue why he was doing it. Um, I jumped through the front bedroom window to get away from him one night. 
which I ran to a woman and she brought me to St. Brendan's. I was a tenant in St. Brendan's for three and a half years. I got him to go up to St. Brendan's. He attended for a week and the doctor in St. Brendan's told me he wasn't 100% and the only way at the moment, I had no way to go with my children and the only thing I could do with my husband was to fall over him when he came in, you know, to be nice and, you know, and I tried this. This didn't work. Well, apart from this constant violence, in other regards, was he a normal husband? Was he interested in the children no, of the house? No, no, no. He had no interest whatsoever in my children. He never spoke to them, but he never hit them. It was either out, up, or shut up. They were the three words to my children. He never brought them anywhere never took them anywhere. I had a child in hospital for three and a half years with a heart complaint. He never went out to see that child. That child came home, he wouldn't let that child go near him. If the child went over to put his hand on him, he'd push him away, he wouldn't let him go near him. The only child he had interest in was the little girl I had. You know? Did he let you go out at all? Oh no, I never went outside the door, never. What about yeah. shopping? You must have gone out Oh, yes, in the morning to, to the shops. Whatnot, yes? yes, to the shops. I went to the shops in the morning. He'd say to me, well, what are you washing your face for? What are you combing your hair for? Going, just going to the shops. The next morning, if I didn't wash my face, I might just get a flannel. He'd say, there, yeah, you won't even wash yourself. You know, he had me all... I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what to do to please him, you know. I tried everything. I'd done everything. Did he ever take you out with him? Yes. Yes, I went out with him and when if I went got to the pub door I'd shake because I knew what was going to happen when I'd be in the pub. What would happen? Well, I'd be sitting there and I don't really drink, but he'd get me buy me plenty of drink, small drinks that I don't like and I would have to drink them. And if he seen anyone looking, he'd make me do myself up going out with him. When he'd see anyone looking, he'd say, There you are. What would it be like now if you were out on your own? Do you know this fella? Do you know that fella? The way he's staring you, the way he's looking at you, you must know him. He'd get me in the car then when I'd come out and he'd kill me. I've never seen the people before me like, they might be even looking at me, you know? So, he just got me to a bad... I just couldn't take any more of the names he called me. He used to get me in the car and make me say I was mad. And I'd have to say, yes, I am mad. I'd have to tell him I was mad. The same sort of story can be heard from dozens of women. There are minor variations, but the main theme is always the same, a de profundis of fear and ugliness and violence. My husband was violent with me before I was married to him because he was jealous of my friends, girlfriends. Didn't want me to have any friends. So I went to England with him, taught that if we had friends together, that it would be OK, you know? Um, we got married in England. We're still all the one. We never had any friends. He used to go out every night, and I had to stay at home. When I was working in England, he was standing at the shop all day where I was working. I was sacked out of the shop to see whether I talked to anyone. We came home from England. I was expecting my first baby, and he used to beat me up regularly. We were living with his mother then. He was afraid, his mother and father, I should say, were afraid of him, 
afraid to do anything about him. They gave him everything. He never worked. They gave him his money. You know, all the money. They bought him cars, a guitar, everything. Paid all his bills and debts, everything else. And I had another baby then. He never hit the kids. But he used to make the eldest girl stand in the corner on one leg. Just to annoy me, more or less. What do you think was the reason behind it all? Was it jealousy of you, or...? I think there was something wrong, you know. And yes, people could talk to him and say there'd be nothing wrong. But after a while, everyone knows, you know. The neighbours knew him. He was, the neighbours reported him for noise, for playing the guitar, and he threw a big rock through their window. And they knew it was him, but they couldn't do anything about it. And they're all afraid of him. And then they wouldn't talk to me because he didn't want me talking to anybody. And so no one spoke to me. No kids played with my kids. We were just living... It was like jail. It was worse. At least in jail you could talk to people. How did he treat your children? They were afraid of their life. They couldn't move in the house. No, He was sitting looking at the telly or anything and the kids wanted to go to the toilet. They'd sneak over to me and whisper to me if they could go to the toilet because he wouldn't let them make noise and they couldn't walk in front of him even to go to the toilet. And they just, they were too good. You know, they were like little angels. It wasn't natural. Well, did he punish them in any way? Only with freedom and making her stand in the corner, you know, that was all. But um, he used to roar and shout at them and all. And, well, they never had a proper food because there was never the money to get it for them. He'd spend their money rather than let me spend for food to go and drink, you know. Everything went on drink. Even the kids' pocket money now that they'd get out, my parents maybe. The breakdown of a woman's courage and the fear of reprisals often bind her to her unhappy home. It takes a tremendous effort to break out. Saturday morning, my son says to me, you go and take the baby. That's the little girl. He said, never get anywhere, come back for us, you see. So um, I went to um, St Brendan's on Saturday and I said, if St Brendan's doesn't get me anywhere with my five children, I am going to take my life and the little one's life. That was the little girl I was going to take an overdose, me and her, because I just could not go on with it. I went to St Brendan's and they got me into the Regina Chaley, which I stayed for two nights. And I went to my social work in Harp Street where my little boy attends with a heart complaint. She rang here and they got me in here and I went and collected my children and they love here. They don't want to leave, they don't want to go home and I don't ever want to go home to my home again. I seen Nuala Fennell actually on the telly once, late, late show, and I wrote to women, I wrote to her and I got an answer from her. And so one day after being up all night, I rang her up and she sent me into, say, didn't I? into the home for battered wives. And I've been there four months and she's after getting me a place for myself and the children. And I've never been so happy in my life as I am now. What about money now that you haven't got her? I get £11 assistance money. I find it hard to manage, but at least... I always found it hard to manage. I always had to manage on nothing, even less. So I'm quite content. What has been the effect on your children of the breakup of the home? 
the children are very happy now and calm. They don't jump anymore when you're saying to them. They used to jump if you even talk loud to them, you know. And the young girl, she used to wet the bed all the time from her nerves and now she doesn't wet the bed anymore, which is a great thing for me, you know. And they're happy. They're happy kids. Well, do you feel safe and secure now? Do you yeah. think the future is all right? Yeah. I don't even think about the future, you know. I more or less live from day to day, but, you know, I can't see anything wrong with anyway, you know. Battered wives are not a new phenomenon. People who take their problems seriously are. Mary Bonotti spoke of the awakening of public awareness and the setting up of the refuge in Harcourt Street, which now houses a dozen women and three dozen children. It didn't start with the setting up of this house, obviously. About, uh, for about four years now, there's been a fairly intensive campaign for family law reform going on in the country, uh, with which most of us have, um, to a greater or lesser degree, been involved. And uh, the ADAPT group was set up about two years ago to help, personally help, the deserted wives and husbands uh, who had uh, written to the AIM group looking for help and information. And after a while it became evident that for a lot of people it wasn't just enough to say, come to our meeting next week or in two weeks' time, that they needed a lot more um, positive help than simply a chat. And these would be the women who were actually living in fear of their lives in some cases. So uh, uh, we, we had read about the Women's Aid Centre in England, which was set up by Erin Pitsey to help battered wives and their children. Uh, because whereas there's always been somewhere children at risk could go, there was nowhere they could go with their mothers, which is a bit illogical since it's obviously a time when a child has been exposed to some trauma when it needs at least one of its parents. So uh, uh, some of us went over to England, Nuala Fennell and Susan Donnelly and myself went over to England and saw the Chiswick Women's Aid Centre and met Erin Pitsey, uh, spoke to her about her ideas. But what really uh, crystallised it all for us was the fact that we found that uh, about 25% of the people in Chiswick were Irish women and Irish children and that in fact Chiswick was was being uh, was uh, while not resenting this was ruefully told us that we'd better soon set up something for ourselves that they couldn't keep on coping with our social problems and indeed a great many places in England are saying exactly the same thing not just with our um, beaten wives so uh, we came back and uh, we appealed for a house uh, and appealed for people who might be interested in helping us to get in touch with us, which they did. And we've been offered this house initially on a six-month caretaker's lease and uh, we expect that the gentleman who kindly gave it to us will obviously want it back in the not-too-distant future. So we're we're, um, thinking now in terms of a permanent refuge Conflict is a possibility in every marriage. It occurs when the difference in individual needs between partners exceeds their ability to adapt. Extreme violence results from any one of a dozen causes or a combination of several. There's a multiplicity of causes. There's no single one thing. Um, The term battered wife 
was used and grew out of the attempt by the doctor who first delineated it uh, to draw attention to a particular thing. But when you put a particular name on something like that, battered wife, you presume that there's a cause and a cure, and it's a single thing. This isn't so. Uh, the battered wife syndrome comes from a multiplicity of causes, some psychological, some um, due to physical injury uh, or physical states, um, some due to social situations. So there's many causes. In your experience, what are the most common? Well, the commonest ones that I see as a psychiatrist are, first, very young people uh, who are married. I'm talking now about teenage marriages, where it's very difficult for them to adapt to the new circumstances. And um, the young girl may feel very vulnerable in this situation, and she may want to return nearer to her own parents. Um, the husband, the young husband, is trying his best to establish a home, which is usually a room somewhere, and uh, he doesn't understand why there's so much argument when he is trying so hard. This can give rise to frustration, conflict, and battering. Or the second situation can arise where, in fact, he gives in. And this is the most common situation. He gives in to her, her demands, and he returns to perhaps live either next door to or actually with his parents-in-law her parents and this this is the recipe for disaster because the mother-in-law then inevitably tries to run the young marriage she becomes vicariously uh, in charge she lays down rules which she thinks are good and which she probably thinks would have been good in her time quarter of a century ago the demands become impossible on the young man and uh, tension conflict sexual difficulties arise for example, um, a young wife living with parents-in-law will usually refuse to have sexual intercourse, the reason being that she's afraid her parents will overhear. Uh, this adds to tensions. One young husband once said to me, my wife is at home with her own folk, but I'm a stranger in a strange house. He actually began to look to look for other, other, other outlets. He began to drink more roused then, resulting in culminating in, in battering his wife, um, and of course drawing the wrath of her family entirely on his head. So the young married situation is, 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 is very dangerous, very vulnerable, and is a common one because there's no provision made for a young married couple. There's no house for them unless they can buy it themselves. So in a lot of cases, um, you know, there may be pregnancy, it may be a precipitant thing, and uh, they have to move in with parents-in-law, in which case this can be a problem. When they do move out then into their own accommodation, things have got so far and communication has broken down so badly that the battering just continues, the rows continue. So that's one major group, much bigger group than people imagine. What about um, jealousy as a factor? <laughs> jealousy can be a factor. And this ties in with another big psychological group, and these are the people who abuse drugs or alcohol. In Ireland, it's nearly always alcohol. And undoubtedly, a man who drinks a lot can begin to feel that his own sexual powers are waning. Now, this need not necessarily, in fact, be physiologically true, but it's a feeling he has. And this can result in the development of a mental state in which he becomes 
he begins to feel that his wife must be getting some sort of sexual satisfaction elsewhere. In other words, he's projecting on his own guilt and his own failure onto her. He assumes that she's having sexual relationships with somebody else. And this is made worse if she's using some sort of contraceptive. If they have four or five kids and, and uh, she's on the pill or something like that because it makes him feel that she's free to do as she pleases. And this can give rise to, to pathological, severe jealousy. And this, this can be almost murderous in the, the amount of violence that it can produce. And a woman can find herself being accused uh, of being um, unfaithful simply because she, uh, a neighbour tips his hat to her on the street. Uh, or because one of the kids said, we met Mr so-and-so in the supermarket today and he bought us a lollipop. That sort of thing. It can precipitate a reaction of the utmost violence and can be homicidal. As if to bear out the clinical analysis of the psychiatrist, one man told me his story. Well, we went together for about a year or so and decided to get married. Were you from the same background? No, there's a difference in background. Like, me being a traveller and one thing and another, you know? I suppose it was, it was different as Chuck and Cheese, but nobody realised it, you know? You were from a travelling family, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. And uh, was she a Dublin girl? Dublin girl, yeah. In Cowra. So you got married. Where did you live when you were married? Well, we stopped with her parents for a while. It didn't work out. Why not? Well, we did a row between me and her mother. And I left and she came with me. Went back to my parents. Where well, we lived in the shed for three or four years before we got a flat, you know. There were no children at this time? Oh yes, we had two children at this stage. This is, I'm talking about like four years. We got a flat in Sean McDermott Street. Everything was fine. We hadn't a whole lot, but we were quite happy, you know. Were you working at that time? I was working on and off. It never seemed to matter much one way. You know, it never, the question never seemed to arise about money or hardships or anything like that. Oh, I realise now that like, things weren't all that easy in any way. Well, how did the trouble start that led to your present situation? Well, like, it only all happened as far as I'm concerned in Kulak three years ago. Were you living in Kulak at this time? I was living time? in Kulak at this time, yeah. There was an accusation of adultery. By whom? Me and Cuban Horvath. I went on for three years and looked at the time she left. She denied this? Oh, she denied it, yeah. Um, anyway, it, was a, it was a ridiculous argument, a ridiculous accusation anyway, like, you know, which I can't go into a whole lot with anyway. But do you still think it's true? No way. So why do you think you, you accused her of this? Well, I was on hearsay, I accused her, you know. You regret it now? Oh, I do indeed. I regret it for the rest of my life. And having accused her of this and she denied it, you resorted to violence, did you? Not so much in the way she, she says violence. I, well, I have hit her, undoubtedly, I have hit her, but I, I wasn't all of I'm not. I don't. I don't go around thumping people, you know. 
Oh, I did hit her right enough. I suppose there's no excuse for her. I'm not trying to condone. I did do it like I did hit her. How often do these rows blow up between you? Oh, quite often, for no reason whatsoever. None that I can explain anyway. Once a week? Twice a week? Twice, three times a week. And each time it'll wind up in a, a fight? Well, an argument. Didn't always come to fisticuffs. When it did come to fisticuffs, did she ever hit you back, or was she capable of it? Or? No, no, she never hit me back. No, she never hit me back. What were your feelings, you know, after you'd hit her and the whole thing had subsided? What a disgust, you know. You, it's hard to explain. It's impossible for me to explain the feelings that run as high as mine do at times, you know. Did you ever apologise to her? I did, yeah. Well, what do you feel now, if you were to come together again, you couldn't guarantee that your feelings wouldn't get the better of you again, presumably? We could. Guarantee, 100%. But you were saying that previous times when you hit her, that, you know, it was simply beyond your control to keep your hands off her, more or less. Yeah, feelings did run high, but I mean, I see... I see things for what they're worth now, uh, whereas uh, I didn't even stop to think about them, you know. Never even get them a second thought. When did she leave you? No, oh, we've been parted like on, I think it's the third occasion. Five weeks was the first time, then three months. We were back before Christmas and away again for whatever length of time she's been away now, three or four weeks. Well, now, presumably the other times that she left you, when she came back, it was an undertaking from you that this was all past, that you were going to start again. Why should she trust you the next time? I took the words out of my mouth. But no, no, I can't give, I can't answer that. I just there's no way. There's, there's no way she should trust, could trust me. I should trust me. Are you a drinking man? No, I don't have much capacity for a drink. I do drink, and I, I drank regular. Like I used to go out six nights a week and drink, but that was two or three pints, you know. And it wasn't the drink you feel that no, started the trouble. I wish they could blame the drink on her or something else. The police are the most likely 24-hour service to be called upon to deal with assaults within the family. Inspector Tom Muldoon talks of their involvement. Originally these uh, calls come in as allegations of assault or family row and it is not until the police arrive at the scene of the assault that they discover in many cases that it's a question of wife beating and the instructions to police are that in such a case that they should approach the matter with great tact and caution because it is often a, a, a situation which is, has a high emotive content and it needs quite a considerable amount of tact and um, good sense to sort, of sort out the problem before deciding how to deal with it. Uh, it's possible that the law, or indeed any outside agency, is a rather blunt instrument in interfering between man and wife. Do you think the police are aware of this themselves? Well, it's a particularly sensitive area for the police to be entering. And uh, the police are very much aware that it is, generally speaking, it is a bit more difficult to get evidence in such cases as wife-beating than it is in normal cases of assault. There are considerations which must be borne in mind by the policeman who considers prosecuting. And, of course, it doesn't follow at all that when the police are called into a situation such as that, that inevitably there would be a prosecution. The attitude of the police would be 
in most cases of rather minor assaults at least, would be that the best way to deal with this would be by an attitude, a conciliatory atti attitude with a view to bringing the parties together again on amicable terms. This whole question of the social role of the police it must figure very largely in their lives and I understand the J district have been conducting experiments in this regard. Well in fact the, the statistics which have been amassed by police forces all over the place, not merely in the J district but all over the place, even in New York, indicate that up to 80% of the calls which police receive for assistance are not truly police calls at all. They're calls of a, of a often of a, a nature very, very lightly or very remotely connected with police work, but they are calls of a quasi-social nature as well. Despite the common sense and tact of the Garthay, sometimes the trouble in the home spills over into the courts. In Dublin, the man most likely to hear the often dreadful details and to listen sympathetically is District Justice de Lapp. I sit in the maintenance court in Dublin and I'm a, the only justice dealing with maintenance in the Dublin Metropolitan District. And 50% of my maintenance cases uh, result from drink or violence or violence or drink. It's nearly impossible to separate both. Is this on the increase? Maintenance cases generally are on, on the increase because I think women are becoming more aware of their rights. Mind you, I think the problem was always there, but it's coming to light more now. It's a very awkward thing to talk about, but does this extend through all social classes, this wife beating? Yes, I, I don't like to, to talk in terms of classes, but it does extend to all classes. In fact, the last case I, ha I had, the husband was earning something in the region of 15000 per year. But obviously, poverty, unemployment, bad housing, in-law trouble, mental troubles, and all kinds of other troubles aggravate this situation. Obviously, if a husband is unemployed and hanging around the house all day, and not in the best of health, and their bad housing and lots of children, well, conditions will get the couple down, and I think they're more likely to use violence to solve their problems than not to use it. Yeah. Well, as a, uh, an observer of the scene, it would strike me that the problem is almost insoluble, that uh, there is a beating, they come to court, you try to patch it up, they go back, there's another beating, and this is a recurring pattern. Do you find this? Yes, but in, in some cases when, when we use the probation service for instance and uh, let the people let off steam in court, adjourn the case for some time and refer them to the probation officer and also to a psychiatrist and I believe Dublin people are very flexible that if, if you show an interest in their problems, if you listen to them and uh, show that you're prepared to help. Uh, they will take your advice, but in a lot of cases it's much too late when it comes, it comes to court. Uh, I often say that the marriage is already dead and that we just signed the death certificate. Helping both the courts and the couples who find themselves in a situation of violence are a number of lawyers. They're mostly young, hard-working and immensely socially aware. Their main function is to provide free legal aid. Alan Shatter is the chairman of their organisation, FLAC. 
well, Flack ha um, in the three, five years that we've been in existence have dealt with in excess of 3,000 uh, marital breakdown type cases, uh, out of which I would say 70% have involved violence in some form or other, wives being battered by the husbands. Um, sometimes husbands also battering the children, but this is, doesn't necessarily follow. Generally, just the wives are being battered. How do they come to you in the first place? Well, they come either they're referred directly by social workers, or there are eight free legal advice centres around the city, and when people uh, come to them uh, themselves looking for help, uh, when this happens, a wife generally doesn't know what she wants. She simply comes. Uh, lays out to us what her situation is and says, you know, what can we do? How can we help? Um, very often, there's not a great deal we can do because uh, the law is so terribly inadequate. Uh, there are very few legal remedies that can, in any, that, that can ameliorate or apply to any great extent. We, if, for example, a wife's deserted, we can get her a maintenance... We can take, um, get her represented in court uh, for a maintenance action. Uh, but outside maintenance actions, there's little... Uh, we can do from in the nature of litigation. Uh, we can advise a wife who's not being supported by her husband of her rights uh, in relation to uh, home assistance or deserted wives allowance. But in the case of battered wives, they are normally not deserted, and that is one of their problems. Well, this is one of the problems. A, a wife sometimes is entrapped. She's uh, almost in jail in her own home simply because she's being battered by her husband, uh, and she has no alternative place to go to and the husband has no uh, intention of leaving the home. So it's a case of her staying there and, and continually being uh, being battered, and there's very little she can do about it. Um, eventually, it, it creates an absolutely intolerable situation. Sometimes she's simply driven out. Uh, and uh, why we have had wives who are literally out on the streets, and they arrive at our centres and say, look, I can't go back there. What on earth can I do? And the problem is that there are very few places in which they can go to. Uh, there is a women's aid place that was opened in Harcourt Street that's been in existence for almost a year now. But what is needed in this situation is a wide range of social services to help a wife in this situation. For a wife in this situation, there are terrible side effects. What, for example, of the children of a marriage where battering takes place? Justice de Lapp poses a chilling dilemma. You always get that conflict between whether you should allow between the stability, say, of a marriage or whether you should allow these innocent victims of, of uh, violence to remain in a hostile environment. But, and it, it, there is a survey has been carried out in England whereby uh, it was found that children of one-parent families are 18 times more likely to come in conflict with the law than children from a normal marriage. and I, uh, I think that's a very damning statistic, and I think the court should take all steps at reconciliation before contributing to that statistic. A massive problem, then, and one likely to be projected into future generations. But the law, if it were changed, could do much to break the pattern. Well, there are a wide variety of legal remedies that are needed. Uh, a wife... Um, should be able to get what's known as a non-molestation order uh, to keep her husband away from the matrimonial home when she is being battered and when she is in danger. Um, there's a need for wives to have greater security in the matrimonial home. At present, the great uh, amount, the great number of houses are in the names of the husbands, 
and uh, as such the husbands have absolute rights to the ownership of the home. What is needed is some type of common ownership of the matrimonial home uh, to, to afford a wife uh, protection um, from have, being driven out in the street perhaps by a husband so she has some uh, right to the home. There's uh, a need for um, a wider ranging type of maintenance uh, order facilities to protect wives in this situation. And fundamentally of all, what is needed is free legal aid provided by the state so, so these wives will be represented, uh, can get free representation in court. At present, the state provides no such free legal aid. The only legal aid provided are by the free legal advice centres. And as we only operate in Dublin, uh, the, despite there are one or two other cent type cent centres similar to ours operating around the country, but there's uh, certainly not... Uh, a sufficient number of centres to provide free legal facilities for wives. I suppose there's very little the law can do to prevent husbands beating their wives. Well, this ultimately is the problem, that the law cannot uh, stop them totally. It can postpone problems. It can, for example, uh, a wife can bring an assault action against a husband, he can be jailed for six months. That'll only exacerbate the problem because he'll come out six months later and he'll come home and he'll beat her up again. Uh, what ultimately un is needed, and it's something that uh, a lot of social workers now are beginning to recognise, but at the moment is obviously totally in, uh, and completely politically untenable, is some type of divorce action in this country. Or if not that, an extension of the nullity jurisdiction that the High Court has at present. Apart from changes in the law, there's need for concerted action at street level. The forces that could be used are badly deployed. The voluntary societies, the social workers, the police, the courts, the psychiatrists, the health boards, the general practitioners, the clergy, the marriage guidance people, all are anxious to help. But they work in comparative isolation, or at best in a tenuous liaison. What's needed is a well-advertised centre which women can contact easily and which will be capable of mobilising the best possible assistance. The women who organise the Harcourt Street House are few in number and low in cash. They're doing something the state should subsidise, and they're doing it without fuss or red tape. They need more houses, and they need more money. But even given assistance, supporting the battered wife is simply a shoring-up exercise. True prevention will come only with effective education of the next generation, and effective social change. There's a problem that society will have to get more concerned about. The, the, the courts cannot be treated in isolation. I think parents, the schools, the church, medical men, psychiatrists, we all have a role to play. Uh, as I said, when it comes to court, it's usually already too late. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.